That is a fantastic song, isn't it? Hallelujah. And turn to Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 20 this morning. It is such a joy to go through the Gospels. It's just such a joy to learn about Jesus Christ. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, we, we talked about he's dead, now what? We talked about that, and, and sometimes I know we, we don't necessarily like to talk about that stuff. Like, he's just that bluntly, he, he was dead. Jesus was dead. He wasn't alive somewhere in a grave. He wasn't, you know, some sort of hidden man that had a hidden agenda. He was dead. He died for our sins, right? And, and we read about the ladies looking on from a distance and, and realizing he's dead, realizing that their hopes, if you will, had been dashed in his death. I don't know that we could fully grasp how devastating his death must have been for these ladies and for men like Joseph of Arimathea, but, but there they are. They watch him die. They wait to see what's going to happen to his body because their plans now have changed from walking with him and living for him and trusting him to preparing his body for death. And we read of Joseph, you know, he'd been a secret disciple of Christ, but he steps up now, um, probably ashamed that he'd been a secret disciple of Christ, steps up at this time and goes to Pilate and asks for his body for the purpose of burying Christ, of honoring him in his death. And yet again, there just must have been this, this brokenness, this emptiness, this heartache in Joseph as he took Jesus' body down from the cross. Uh, there is nothing about a dead body that's glamorous or encouraging. And lays it in his tomb. We read of the ladies following so they know where they can go that next Sunday, right? First day of the week, they're going to go to the tomb and, and finish preparing his body for burial if they can. And I mean, really, he's dead. And what do we do? And let's just be honest, if Christ had died, there was nothing more to do than just bury him. That was it. There was nothing left to do, nothing left to hope in. But praise God, right? We, we read last week that hope is alive, right? He rose from the dead. I mean, the most glorious thing you and I could ever conjure up. I know we have glorious things and glorious plans and glorious hopes in various things in this world, right? I can't wait for my next vacation. I can't wait for my next big adventure. I can't wait for my next big purchase. I can't wait for my next big, you know, whatever. Those things, those things are nothing, right? Because as soon as you have it, you're waiting for your next one. You're waiting for something else. But man, Christ rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. And it was glorious. I mean, just the scene was glorious, right? We talked about the angel being sent from heaven. There was an earthquake and the, the angel appears and he's like lightning. It looks like lightning with clothes as white as snow. And, and the, the guards, the powerful Roman guards shook with fear and fell, at, fell to the ground as dead men. 
And here's this glorious God revealing the good news of salvation and hope to these precious women that had come to the tomb and then revealing himself to them and they worshiped him. But the glory all belonged to Christ, right? It all belonged to Christ. He rose from the dead. He is who he claimed to be. He was not just savior of the world. He was the Lord God Almighty who took the form of a man and lived a sinless life and willingly laid down his life for the sins of the world that through him all who would believe in him would be saved. He is savior. He is Lord. He's worthy. That's such good news. That's such good news. There's not a person on this planet that doesn't need to hear that good news. And there's not a person on this planet that doesn't need that salvation. And it is incredible to us. But this morning, I want us to, I want us to see something that's incredibly important too. When we talked about he's dead now, what? This morning we're going to talk about he's alive. Now what? And I, I hope we'll listen. These are familiar passages. This, matter of fact, 18 through 20 is one of the most familiar passages you're ever going to read in the Bible. And it should be. But we don't hear it very well. We don't hear it very well. We don't want to hear it very well. We don't want to necessarily realize that what Christ has done for us should transform who we are, and what we live for. And I pray that God will speak to us today. So Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 11. Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. What else can we say? You have been so good to us. You are so good to us. And you will be so good to us in Christ for all eternity. For that, we give you praise. We're so undeserving of your love. We're so undeserving of salvation. We're so undeserving of your grace and your continued love and your faithfulness. Now, how can we do anything but praise you? And I pray, Lord God, that as you draw us to you and as we see your beauty and your glory and experience your love, that you would you would show us, Lord, that you do have a desire in this world and a purpose for us as followers. And it's not a hard purpose, it's a simple purpose, and it's a privilege. And I pray, Lord God, that we would know what to do now 
that you're alive. Know what to do in response to your resurrection. And we bring glory and honor to you. And I pray, Lord, for those that have never trusted you as Savior and Lord, that today would be the day of their salvation. And I pray, Lord God, you'd be honored in all that you do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So here we have this interesting little passage, right? Christ has risen from the dead. He's, he's shown himself to these ladies. He's told the ladies, go to the other men, the 11 disciples, the apostles that are left, and tell them that I'm alive, and tell them to go into Galilee where they'll see me, where they'll, where I'll meet them there. And we have this little interesting section here that, that quite honestly is is always going to be one of two responses to Jesus Christ and his resurrection. There's always going to be two basic responses. There might be nuances on those responses, but there's always two responses. And the first one is just to reject him. It's just that simple, right? Just to reject the truth about Jesus Christ. And so we read here in verse 11, while they were on their way, meaning the ladies, while they were on their way to tell the the apostles, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And uh, it's not a hard thing to understand, right? It's, it's pretty simple. These guys had been passed out. They'd been like dead men. And then they came to, and then they realized, man, there's, there's a problem here. We were sent to guard this tomb, potentially at the risk of our lives, Uh, Any assignment they were given, if they didn't carry out their duties, they could potentially lose their life. And and that was no casual thing for them. It wouldn't be casual for us today. And they had a problem. Jesus is gone. Apparently, Jesus is alive. They know that this is no ordinary grave robbery. They know, right? If it had been ordinary, more than likely they would have overcome the robbers and there wouldn't have been a problem and that would have all been well. All they would have had to do is say, somebody tried to steal the body, we overcame them, the body's still there, all is well. But no, the earth shook. (laughs) The earth shook and an angel came and scared them so bad they passed out like dead men and when they woke up, the angel's gone, the ladies are gone, and Jesus is alive. And now they got a problem. And so it says they go to the chief priests, right? These are the ones that were most concerned about protecting Jesus' body because they'd been lying to themselves. They'd been lying about Jesus. They knew that if Jesus actually rose from the dead, they would be for sure labeled hypocrites like Jesus said they already were, right? They would have been known. They would have been exposed. And so they go to the chief priests, and they tell their story, and it must have been, must have been quite an interesting story. Don't you think? You think those guys weren't shaking still? You think they didn't have some wide eyes? You think it wouldn't have been crazy for them to say, we saw an angel, and we passed out in fear of him, and the ground shook, and the glory of God was seen, and we woke up, man, Jesus was gone, and there was nobody to be had. What do you want us to do? Because, man, it's really on these religious guys. It's really on these religious leaders. It's really on these guys that are supposed to know God's word. They're supposed to be leaders of the people. They're supposed to be men that would intercede between God and men and intercede on behalf of men to God. These are supposed to be godly men. 
And they've been rejecting the truth about Jesus all along. And quite honestly, they'd been rejecting God all along. It wasn't optional. There's no way to say that that they were doing anything but rejecting God. If you reject God, you reject Jesus. If you reject Jesus, you reject God. That's just the way that goes. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? They're one. These men were wicked men, but now they had the chance. Now they had the chance to confess that, yes, they'd been hypocrites, and yes, they'd been denying God, but he's alive. Right? His resurrection changes everything. Christ's resurrection should change everything about our allegiance and about our love and about our life. Our life ought to be consumed with Jesus Christ. Our life ought to be delighted in Jesus Christ. Our life ought to be full of him, living for him, glorifying him, pleasing him, serving him. Man, there's nothing casual about Jesus. There's nothing casual about him. Everything else is casual compared to him. Everything. But no, no. It says when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you're to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And man, they just began to spread the lie. I mean, you want, you want to figure out the lie in this world, the primary lie in this world, it's that Jesus Christ is not the Savior, that Jesus Christ is not God in the flesh, that Jesus Christ did not come to die for the sins of the world, and that Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, and that we don't have to worship him and serve him and bow down to him and trust him for salvation. That is the lie in this world. And man, it is poured out in so many different ways. It's poured out in evolution and the claims of evolution. It's poured out in morality. It's poured out in the claims of religion. They say, if you do this and you do that, you'll be okay with God. It's poured out in so many different ways. It's poured out in greed. It's poured out in selfishness. I mean, it's poured out in any way you want to figure it out that's opposed to God. It's all over the place. The lie that says Jesus Christ is not God. That Jesus Christ is not the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through him. That's the lie. And these men, they gather with the elders. They gather with the leaders because they've been opposed to God from the beginning. They're still opposed to God. And now they know that the only way for them to save whatever face they think they need to save is by telling a lie. They knew. They knew. They knew Jesus was alive. They knew. The guards came and told them. I believe they knew before then. I believe they knew that when they had arrested Jesus the night before he was crucified and they were looking for people to tell a lie, to give an untrue testimony, they knew. But that's the way the world is, isn't it? It's that way. Man, the world wants to cling to every ounce of this rebellion that they can have. They want to propose lies. They want to deny the truth. They want to rebel against God. 
Because quite honestly, coming to God means you come with all your life. You come with every ounce of your being. You come to him and say, I don't want to live for myself anymore. You're the Lord. You're the king. Here's my life. I surrender to you. It's going to be your way, not my way. It's going to be your truth, not my truth. It's going to be unto death. If that's what it requires, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to be your disciple. You're worthy of worship, honor, service, and sacrifice, and faithfulness, and perseverance, and endurance, and love. You're worthy. That's how we come. But the world, the world says, no, the most important thing to me is me. Right? The most important thing to me is to be impressive to someone else. To get what I want, do what I want, be who I want, live how I want. And you don't get to tell me how to do it. Kind of sounds like a Wyoming thing. But it's not. It's not. It's a world thing. From here to the ends of the earth, right? And so they bribe these soldiers and they tell them to tell a lie. These guys know no one came to steal the body. They know. They know that when the stone was rolled away, Christ was already gone. They know. They know the truth. But for a large sum of money, they're going to sell their souls They're going to sell their souls for money. Sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? And oh my goodness, man, when money owns your soul, it is a wicked slave master, isn't it? And so they tell him, you tell everybody that his disciples came by night and stole away, stole his body away while they were asleep, where we were asleep. And when they say, if it should come to the governor's ears, We will win him over and keep you out of trouble. I mean, they knew, quite honestly, that if this got to the governor, the governor wasn't going to put up with that stuff. I mean, the Romans just did not put up with their soldiers, not carrying out their duty. It was dereliction of duty. And they would certainly go to jail for that. But like I said, they could possibly die. But these guys were willing to just Sell it all, wholesale lie, wholesale lie, wholesale lie to make sure that people were misled about Christ. And do you realize today how many wholesale lies are being told to us? It's kind of shocking to me how how we so desire to be naive Don't we? We so desire to be naive. We want to be naive so that we can be free to be wretched and sinful and selfish. I mean, I've heard it, I, I can't even tell you how many times, you know, where people say to me, you know, Mike, I, uh, I really believe in science. So therefore, I don't believe in God. 
I've heard it so many times I can't even tell you. Listen, I happen to believe that science is a good thing, but science without God is a lie. It's just a lie. I mean, I, I love to just ask him the questions. Well, so you believe that there was nothing? And then suddenly from nothing, with no force, no intelligence, no effort, no explanation, there was something from nothing. Science tells us that's not possible. And then I like to say to them, well, if something somehow popped out of nothing, which is impossible, what made it do anything? I mean, I haven't had tons of science, but I've had a little bit. Even basic physics say that, that work is force times distance. You have to make something move, right? You have to make it move. It won't move without something making it move. What, what made nothing pop into something and what made something explode? And what, make, what explosion has ever made order? Ever, ever. Any kind of explosion anywhere for any reason that ever made order? Never, not ever. I think it'd be awesome to grab a, just a stack of dynamite and go blow things up. I'm not kidding. It would just, I would just have a great time. But no explosion with any amount of dynamite would ever make order. Not ever. That's not how it works. And you just keep working that out until you realize, man, that, you can deny God in that if you want to, but you're just lying. Do you realize that that common lie is being shared in every grade school, in every junior high, in every high school, in every college? It's being perpetuated at every level in this world. Do you realize that? And people are okay with it? And we're so naive that we go, you know, I want to believe in evolution, even under God. No. That's not how that works. There's a God. Because he's God, because he created the world and the universe that we live in, because he says he created you and I, we have value, we have substance. We have meaning, we have purpose. We're not a mistake. We're not cheap. We're not disposable. You can't throw us away. It impacts how we view life. It impacts how we view, view abortion. It impacts everything about us. It impacts whether we have encouragement in our life. It impacts whether we have this hope in our life. It impacts everything. And of course, when you put Christ in there and you realize that, hey, we've sinned against God and we realize that Jesus then still loved us and died for our sins, it gives us even greater depth and greater purpose in that. Man, the truth about God is that God created us and loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Hallelujah. Life is cheap without God. No wonder suicide is so high in this world today. No wonder marriages are falling apart so much today. No wonder kids are overwhelmed with depression today. No wonder because they don't know the truth about God because we 
are so silent and we don't want to contradict the truth that the world perpetuates even though it's a lie. Man, we, we just wanna let things be. We don't wanna take stances and we don't want to right, speak truth because the truth is still hard to speak, isn't it? Because truth always calls people to repentance. It calls people to humility, but it leads them to life. These guys cared more about their positions and about their prominence, about their influence, about their income than they did about life, their own lives, the lives of anybody else that they were now spreading the lie about. And I got to tell you, when we read passages like this, I, I don't want us to be surprised. And I don't want us to be discouraged. It's always going to be this way until Christ returns and makes this world new again and does away sin. Do you know this? We're going to be in this fight. We're going to be in this battle every single day. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We're the, we're the light in this world. We're the ones that know Jesus. We're the ones that know the truth. We ought to be about it. Amen? Well, there's quite a contrast. Verse 15 says, And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. This story has been widely spread among the Jews and is to this day, at least until the day that Matthew wrote this gospel, but it's still being perpetuated in so many ways, Right? But look at the contrast. But the 11 disciples proceeded to, to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. So here's these guards going to the chief priests and buying into the lie. Give me money, I'll say anything you want me to. But the disciples... They'd heard he was alive. The women had told them that he was alive. Quite honestly, we know from the other gospels that, that Jesus had already appeared to them in Jerusalem. He had. He'd appeared to the two men on the road to Emmaus. They'd returned to Jerusalem while they were back telling the disciples that they'd seen Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Jesus appears. So he's appeared to them already. But he's told them, go to Galilee. Go see me there. I'm going to spend time with you there. And so they're going to Galilee, and these guys are excited. They're not afraid. They're not afraid of getting in trouble. They're not afraid of what's going to happen to them. They might be, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, they might be a little bit nervous, and probably rightfully so. We'll talk about why here in a minute. But Jesus is alive. Again, you're not going to minimize the power of the resurrection to these men. You're not going to minimize the glory of this resurrection because, man, these guys are so excited about what Christ has done for them and they're so excited about him being alive that I'm sure they were buzzing. Would have been a short, probably very quick trip to Galilee. They'd have been on the way, right? 
And it says they went to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Jesus had told them where they were going to go and he was going to show up when they got there. And it says when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Man, I, uh, I know that it's interesting that some doubted him. But let's talk about why they worshipped him first, Right? It's not hard to see why they worshiped him. Nobody rises from the dead. Nobody rises from the dead after telling others he's going to die and on the third day rise from the dead. You see, Jesus had made claims all along about who he was. These men had already declared, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And they thought they knew what that meant. I mean, James and John and their mom had come to Jesus and said, when you come into your kingdom, may one of us sit on your right and one of us sit on your left. And Jesus is like, ah, you don't really understand my kingdom yet. And those places aren't for me to decide, right? They didn't understand. They thought he was going to be an earthly king. And then he died, which meant he wasn't even going to be an earthly king. But now he's alive. And now maybe, and for sure, lights are coming on in their minds And all of a sudden, man, they began to know Jesus like they could have never known him before. Like, oh, he's he's not just a man. He told us he wasn't, but he's not just a man. If he's not just a man, he is what he said he was. Emmanuel, God with us. He's the living one. He's the glorious one. Why wouldn't they worship him? I mean, folks, I know some of us have heard the resurrection so many times that honestly, it becomes almost mundane. But it was not mundane to them and it should not and cannot be mundane to us. He is alive He's the Lord of lords and the King of kings. It wasn't hard for those who understood that to worship him. So why were there some who were doubtful? I mean, that's, that's pretty tough, right? Why did some of them doubt? And there's only one other time in the New Testament where this word is used, and it's over in Matthew 14, 31, and it says, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of Peter and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And it was the time where Jesus is walking on the water in the middle of the night and the men see him. They think he's a, a ghost. They think he's a spirit. And Jesus cries out to them and says, it's me. And Peter says, if it's you, Lord, command me to come walk on the water with you. And Jesus said, come. And Peter gets out of the boat and starts walking in the water. I mean, that's incredible. That's incre- walking on the water. But then the Bible says he sees the wind and he doubts and he begins to sink. And Jesus has to lift him up. And he rebukes him for his lack of faith. Why did you doubt? And that term literally means a loss of confidence or hesitation in your faith. And so here we see the kind of the same thing. Why are you doubting? What's, where's this lack of confidence? Where's this hesitation about who I am? And, and there's 
There's different thoughts about that. I mean, some people say that maybe they didn't recognize Jesus. Maybe they didn't understand who he was, but there's nowhere in these accounts in any of the gospels where they didn't know it was Jesus when he shows up. I mean, Thomas, the first time Jesus shows up, he's not there. The men tell him that, hey, we've seen Jesus. And Thomas says, I'm not going to believe until I touch the, the scars in his hands and the, the scar in his side. And so Jesus shows up the next time and Thomas is there and he says, Thomas, be not unbelieving, but believe. Touch my hands, touch my side. Thomas falls down to worship. He knew who he was. He, he recognized him. So I don't think it's that they didn't recognize. Quite honestly, more than likely, they weren't quite sure what to do, period. I mean, imagine now, you used to walk with Jesus, but you didn't really fully understand who he was. You'd have conversations with him. He'd pray with you, pray for you. You'd have supper with him. You'd hear him teach. You'd watch him heal. You had a, you had a relationship with him, and now all of a sudden, he is more than what you thought he was. He is the risen Savior. How in the world now are you supposed to walk with him? What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go up and hug him like you used to? Or do you fall down at his feet and worship? The answer was yes. The answer was yes. But how do you know? And if that weren't enough, right? You remember what they did the night before he was, the night when he was arrested? After he told them they'd all fall away? They all fell away. They all fell away. And now, now you know his Lord. What do you do? What's interesting to me is not so much what do you do, but what Jesus does. I, I find this to be pretty profound because Jesus could have done a lot of things. Jesus did speak about different things after he was resurrected, but Matthew is really clear. Matthew says in verse 18, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And I, I love that. I love that because Jesus doesn't deal with them in their doubt. He doesn't deal with them and tell them, hey, here's how you're supposed to worship me. Here's why you're supposed to worship me. He's already told them that. If you look over in John chapter four, he's already said that those who want to worship me will worship me in spirit and in truth one day, right? There's gonna be a way to worship me. They've already heard some of these things. He's already taught them many things. He's not gonna just take time out to say, hey, you're worshiping right, you're worshiping wrong. That's all gonna work out because he's gonna keep working in their life. But Jesus comes up to them, he has a purpose. I want us to see this. Jesus has a purpose. He's not, he's not acting in response to how they respond to him. He's calling them to respond to him the way he wants them to respond to him. He has a purpose. So he comes up to them, it says, and it says he spoke to them. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And that is one incredibly powerful command. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That he's telling them, I reign over everything in heaven and I reign over everything on earth. I'm the highest authority of all authorities, 
You're not the authority on earth. Your boss is not the authority on earth. Your community's not the authority on earth. Your politicians are not the authority on earth. Jesus Christ, I'm the authority in heaven and on earth. He's telling them, I'm God. And they know, they know. And you and I have got to hear it. We've got to know that Christ has authority in our lives. He has authority in our city. He has authority in our state and in our nation and in this world. He has authority over what's happening in Israel and among the Palestinians and among Hamas today. His authority in Russia. His authority in the Ukraine. His authority in these nations that are, are broken in, in, in chaos that we don't even read about today or know about today. He has authority. And it's important to know that for many different reasons But one of those reasons is because he has an agenda. God has an agenda on this earth. And he's about to tell us what it is. And you and I need to understand that, that man, he's not contradicting anything else he's going to do. This is his way of commissioning us. We call this 18 through 20 the Great Commission. It's what he's saying. This is what my church is supposed to be doing. I'm sending you out for this reason, right? That's what we, every single one of us that calls Jesus Lord and Savior is commissioned for this purpose. Every single one of us, regardless of how we feel or what we want or how adequate we are, this is it. And I love the fact that that Christ calls us to many things He does call us to many things. The great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. That's the great commandment, right? Does it contradict the great commission? No. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and if you love your neighbor as yourself, you're gonna do this. Do you understand? That's what you're going to do because you love him. Because you love others. It's not contradictory. And so he tells them, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. It's been given to me. And we've talked about this throughout the, the book of Matthew, how Jesus' favorite title for himself was Son of Man. And how that was a reference from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And now Jesus says, you get to see this lived out. Listen to what it says again in Daniel seven thirteen and 14. So they kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." So Jesus now has come into his glory. He's come into his kingdom. He's now the Savior. He's now the Lord. And I want you to know this, that no one is more kingdom-minded than the Lord Jesus Christ. So what should you and I be? We should be kingdom-minded. Amen, anybody? But you know what happens with most of us? Salvation becomes a personal experience. And it is. Uh, It is the personal experience. It changes our hearts. It changes our our lives. It changes the way we view the world. It gives us hope. It gives us peace. It gives us strength. It gives us stability. 
But many of us go, that's really all I want, Lord. Thanks for giving me what I needed. Don't ask for anything else. Don't demand anything else. Good to see you. Leave me alone. Right? Got my ticket to heaven. Leave me alone. Well, first of all, that's incredibly arrogant. It's really rebellious. And it's incredibly selfish. Because he's alive. He's alive. He's alive. He's overcome death. He's overcome sin. He's done it for us. If we trust him, he's washed our sins away. And he dwells in us. And he loves us. Our response to him is not based on what we want. Our response to him is based on what he wants. Because he's worthy, right? So he says, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. The response to Christ's resurrection, the response to the fact that he's the Lord of lords and King of kings, is to do what he says. Go and make disciples of all nations. What that means is that every single believer here this morning is to be engaged in bringing people to a relationship with Jesus Christ whereby they follow him. I'm not talking about bringing somebody to a place where they pray a prayer. Man, evangelism today has come to the place where we decide if we can lead somebody to pray a prayer, all is well, we'll leave them alone, we'll see them later. Good luck. Do you realize that there's no such thing as a sinner's prayer in the Bible? There's no such thing. No such thing. I had a sweet experience here last couple of months. I had a person come to me really broken, really hurting, really needy, suicidal, really struggling. And so I share Christ with them. They leave. They call me a couple days later. I see you again, Pastor. Okay, they come, they come in again. I share Christ with them again. And, and they're, they're like, I need that. I need that. I need that. And I said, okay, I, I just, I need you to pray. I share scripture with him, you know, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And, and so I, I, I encourage him to, you know, confess Christ, etc. But he prays something like this. God, I'm hurting and I'm in trouble. I've been on the wrong path. I need you to put me on the right path. I need you to help me. Amen. Does anything like that prayer sound like the sinner's prayer that we're supposed to pray? And I'm like, all right. I'll see you later. So he comes in a couple more times. And I'm, I'm beginning to, to realize, man, there's some legit change here going on. And then I don't see him for about a month. Because last time we meet, I tell him, look, if you don't surrender to Christ everything, you're just going to keep hurting. And he goes, got it. I'm going to give my life to Christ all the way. And he leaves. Matter of fact, kind of guy. So I don't see him for a month or so and finally I get a chance to see him and sit down with him and you know what comes pouring out of this guy? 
I've been reading my Bible every day. I've been going to church. I've been hearing him teach the book of Romans and God's killing it in my life. And I got peace like I've never had before. You know what he's telling me? I'm saved. That's what he's telling me. Right? Do you know how I know he's saved? Because he's become a disciple. Because now the spirit of God's in him. Because he's now following and he's growing. It had nothing to do with the prayer that he prayed. He didn't know how to pray. So he did the best he could. As sincere as he was. God knew his heart. Right? God knew he had faith in Christ. And God transformed this guy. We're so dead set sometimes about somebody praying a prayer. And so many people have told me in the past, I prayed a prayer. I got baptized. I was part of a church. So what? The religious leaders showed up at the temple every single day of their life and were nothing but hypocrites. So what? We are here to make disciples. We're here to make followers of Christ. Jesus said, unless you take up your cross daily and deny yourself, you're not worthy of me. We gotta take up our cross and follow him. We're out, we're out to make disciples, men and women that will love Jesus and follow him and serve him. And quite honestly, if you claim to know Jesus, if you claim to have prayed a prayer and there's no change in your life and if you're not following Christ, you're not growing and serving him, don't claim to be saved. Your salvation will be evident in your life and how you live your life and who you are as a follower of Christ and you'll be faithful because Christ is in you. It won't be about you. And Jesus didn't say, go have somebody pray a prayer. He said, go make disciples. The church ought to be about making disciples and then teaching them all things that I have, wait, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so he tells them, man, go make disciples, but you go baptize them. Baptizing them is basically saying to them, you now identify with Jesus. You now show the world that Jesus Christ has changed your life. You go stand publicly and you be laid under the water like you died to your old self and be raised up in the newness of life and walk with Jesus Christ and you be identified with not just God the Father, but with God the Son, me, he says, and God the Holy Spirit, three in one God. You be identified with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let the world know that there's a new man with God in him. Isn't that awesome? It drives me crazy today. So many people say, well, I've been saved, but I've never been baptized. Well, get with it. Because that's what Jesus said to do. Then you and I are leading and making disciples ought to be bringing people to public confession about Jesus Christ. What are you afraid of? What are you ashamed of? Man, take a step. We are so weak today. It's just heartbreaking to me. We're afraid of everything. We're afraid of commitment. We're afraid of being a part of a church. We're afraid of being members of a church. We're afraid of being baptized. We're afraid of serving. We're afraid of giving. We're afraid of everything. It's like Christ doesn't even exist. If Christ is alive and he's in us, what do we have to be afraid of? Men, 
Jesus says, my call for you, because I've been given all authority in heaven and earth, on earth, is to go in my name, make disciples, and baptize these people that they might stand for me, identify with me, with the Father, with the Holy Spirit, like they're ours now. And he says, and teaching them all things that I have commanded you. We ought to be about teaching people. It's, it's a little bit disturbing, again, because we're so afraid. I can't tell you how many parents have come to me and said, man, I, I want my kid to come to church with me, but he doesn't want to. So? He doesn't want to go to school. He doesn't want to do his chores. He doesn't want to grow up. He doesn't want to have responsibility. You're just letting him go on those things too? Why not teach your child who God is by word and by deed? Why not take a stance? Why not speak about Jesus in your workplace? Why not teach people about Christ is, especially those who are disciples? Man, one of the sweetest things that God has ever done in my life is to let me just walk with people and disciple them in Christ. Not just as a pastor, but sometimes one-on-one in many different ways. But we're so afraid, aren't we? We're just afraid. Afraid we're going to do something wrong in the name of Jesus and offend somebody. Well, what are you more afraid of, offending someone or offending Jesus? He tells us, all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. So go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them all things that I have commanded you. And here's the best part of all this. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Men. One of the most powerful things that you will ever do is share Christ with somebody. It is powerful. It is not just powerful to those that you share with. It's powerful right here. You want to know if Jesus is alive? Share Christ with somebody. He'll do more in your life than you could ask or imagine. I mean, is it intimidating sometimes yeah because it's a battle liars out there trying to tell you this isn't going to go so well and sometimes it doesn't go the way you want it to sometimes people do make fun of you sometimes people do slam the door in your face sometimes people might say mean things to you oh my sometimes sometimes you walk into somebody's door it's a 20 year old kid with three children who tells you no one's ever loved me, no one's ever valued me, no one's ever listened to me, and I'm tired of living, and I could put a shotgun in my mouth, blow my head off, and be better off. And you say to him, can I tell you about God? I don't think God can help me. Would you let me share about God's love? You start to tell him about Jesus, and he begins to tell you all these things, how angry he is, and then this unassuming man in our church Unassuming, humble, never heard his story before, steps up and says, I've been there, I've been angry, I've been hateful, hated myself, but Christ Jesus changed my life. Why don't you just trust him? 
and you watch your wife hand him a door hanger with some verses on it. I don't even know what they are to this day. You watch this kid read the verses and start crying. And my wife, who's not what you would call touchy-feely, says, can I hug you? And this kid hugs her and cries and weeps on her shoulder. And you get the chance to say this kid, because he's not ready to trust Christ. You get the chance to say to him, though, our God loves you. And if you cry out to him, he'll save you and he'll help you. And this kid says, thanks for coming. You have no idea how much I needed this today. You think that Jesus is not with us to the end of the age as we go and take this gospel to make disciples? If you think that, you've never done it. It's not an option. He's alive. So what do we do in response to his resurrection? We become kingdom people. Christ cares more about seeing men and women become his disciple than he does anything else. Because when they become his disciple, he saves their souls, he walks with them, he gives them life, he secures them forevermore. There is nothing on this planet more important to Christ than people coming to know him and being part of his kingdom. So nothing should be more important to us. Nothing. So now what? Now we go. Right? Now we go. Maybe the place to start is, first of all, Lord, I'm sorry as I have rebelled against your commission and I'm sorry. So now, Lord, help me. Help me to love you and others so much that I want to obey, obey you and I want to be about it. And then pray, Lord, may many, many, many people come to know you as Lord and Savior. Let's pray.